Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. Core Buddhist teachings of the Dharma. The Buddha noted that all human beings have what he called anusayas. Uh, some people now pronounce them anusayas. They're sometimes unconscious, sometimes barely we're aware of them. They're predilections or tendencies. And very often they're tendencies or predilections that we're not too especially comfortable with or proud of. They're, for, for example, uh, predilections to addictively crave short-term pleasures, to seek tribal superiority, tendencies of uh, overwhelming fear of the unknown and unfamiliar, tendencies to resist anything that's even slightly unpleasant. So Anasayas are survival and pleasure first. They're very antisocial. Nobody feels particularly proud of the impulses associated with Anasayas. But they express themselves through feelings and impulses. And as the Buddha noted, they can become so insistent that these feelings can urge us all the time to uh, act in transgressive or ways that cause suffering for ourselves and for others. It's interesting that the Buddha noted that there's no way to directly address these underlying tendencies or impulses. They're kind of a given from his perspective. The solution he provides is to observe feelings in and of themselves which contain or express or exhibit these, these very disturbing impulses to allow the feelings to arise and pass in the body. And then once the impulses or the feelings which make the impulses, the feelings which make the impulses seem so forceful subside, then we can skillfully inhibit the actions. But at no point does he at first say, uh, you know, another approach he talks about is we can replace unskillful thoughts or if they're conscious with skillful thoughts. But he also notes if that doesn't work, it's very often more successful to simply observe the the underlying feelings in the body that occur when we have these distressing thoughts. Freud said that we all have innate drives, kind of similar to Anasaya's, to attach, to seek pleasure. And we also have aggressive drives to punish or push away that which hinders our pleasure or our finding uh, positive sensory sensations in the world. So for Freud, aggression, pleasure, and then attachment as well are core drives. The role of the ego in, in his thinking was to direct our drives in ways that they could be fulfilled cathartically, but without breaking the codes of social contract or morals, which are held in our superego, all these rules of what we should and shouldn't do. So for Freud, consciousness, the role of it is to be aware of our impulses for sensory pleasure, to for attachment or for aggression, but to channel it skillfully. So, for example, if we feel 
a degree of aggression and wanting to hit or uh, scream or yell for a sublimation or a skillful way to express that might be to go to a gym and kick a boxing bag or uh, for if we have um, sexual desires that feel inappropriate we wait until we could fulfill them in a skillful way so for Freud <clears throat> the role of consciousness is primarily to direct our these core impulses or instincts to a successful outcome sometimes Freud noted that the impulses are so disturbing they're kept unconscious and that means they're repressed if they do reach our conscious awareness if we know of these impulses then we'll suppress which means push down repress means keep down something in our unconscious out of our awareness so for example if someone has an erotic fixation on an inanimate object such as uh, shoes um, they might very well be aware of that but for a long time they might suppress it out of their awareness push it aside deny it block it on the other hand if somebody grows up in a very strict religious culture and they have same-sex attraction their desires might be so disturbing to their worldview that they'll keep these desires repressed which means blocked from their own conscious awareness when <clears throat> so-called unacceptable impulses that violate the codes of our culture become conscious these impulses to uh, have sex with someone that is deemed inappropriate in the value systems of our culture or to act aggressively to steal something to um, to uh, do something that uh, to shout or act in a way that is considered to be outside of the morals of our culture uh, it's represented as a thought and the shadow self which is what a term Jung came up with uh, is filled with all of these impulses that are deemed by our culture to be inappropriate uh, uh, un uh, uh, un uh, beyond the pale transgressive and so forth when we look at other cultures taboos and when other cultures look at our taboos very often what's forbidden in one country might seem absolutely weird to us and what we find uh, taboo is um, might seem weird to people in other cultures in Southeast Asia uh, in the islands of Indonesia and other places a person's head is considered to be sacred and it's a taboo to touch other people's heads and so people very often have repeated uh, disturbing thoughts of walking around and touching other people's heads that's because it's a taboo there in our culture there isn't really such a taboo so nobody has forbidden thoughts or disturbing thoughts about going around and tapping someone on their head in Japan there's a, a famous phobia called koro which is men work through their castration fears by having a a real deeply disturbing concern that their genitals might retract up into their body and they have constant disturbing many men have constant disturbing nightmares and fantasies of somehow suddenly waking up and their genitalia not being there anymore uh, this is 
a cultural phobia and because of it it actually has a great deal of prevalence i've never met anyone in the west who has that specific fear or forbidden thought um on the other hand there are cross-cultural themes that are common or found in many cultures certainly taboos against adultery and incest come to mind um, and it's interesting that in certain religious contexts taboos are so uh, deeply detailed and and prevalent in the uh, spiritual reward view that the forbidden thoughts and impulses are externalized in the concept of Satan where now are these impulses that we have to seek pleasure, sensual gratification, to engage in uh, acts that are considered to be taboo are thought to be the work of a tempter outside of ourself named Satan or the devil who lures uh, individuals into unholy acts of masturbation or whatever even though certainly masturbation is by any account a very natural and uh, in no way harmful act but yet in many spiritual perspectives it's the work of satan that tempts people to engage in it um the more restrictive a culture the more individuals within have forbidden distressing thoughts there's a direct correlation between the clinical assessment of intrusive thoughts and obsessive compulsive disorder in strict religious settings if you look at the work of koenig and stetke quay and white and a lot of studies in 1991 and 1993 they showed persuasively that the more strict a fundamentalist culture the more people struggle with forbidden thoughts and it's not hard to see why so freud focused on bringing these repressed disturbing impulses to consciousness very often uh, for Freud they were desires to have sex with someone in one's family or to engage in some kind of uh, fetish behavior and for Freud uh, bringing repressed content or drives that are disturbing up to consciousness brings relief from all of the neurotic symptoms associated with the period we try to repress or suppress these disturbing forbidden thoughts so what are the symptoms associated with repression and suppression well the first Freud said is that and this is I found in my work in counseling very common we when someone is struggling with a desire that feels frightening to themselves they get signal anxiety and signal anxiety is a state of hypervigilance associated with insomnia loss of appetite and inability to focus because a lot of their mental energy is being uh, taken up by an internal conflict to repress very natural drives the unspoken or scary forbidden thought might be something as simple as I'm unhappy in my job and I want to quit or I'm unhappy in my relationship or I want to sleep with someone who's considered an other in my culture or it could be that uh, a, a desire to act out on a fetish impulse or whatever and while people constantly push the forbidden thought out of awareness they wind up very anxious because they haven't integrated it they haven't acknowledged it they haven't 
brought it into conscious, allowed it to be there and disclosed it to another human being. When people are suppressing unwanted thoughts, they have what's called, um, they practice avoidance coping. They'll avoid any situation that triggers the suppressed or repressed impulse to return back to awareness. So for example, people who have uh, sexual desires that disturb them will start to avoid any situation that might trigger those sexual desires. They might start to avoid any TV show or um, any movie or any content that has sexual content, or they might uh, go out of their way if they have desires for uh, certain kind of aggressive acts to avoid looking at movies or content that's violent. Uh, repression and suppression is associated with core shame. Uh, if people uh, during early childhood experiences have a damaged sense of self due to abandonments or lack of secure um, connection with a caregiver, they believe uh, there's something wrong with them. There's something wrong with me. There's something unlovable about me. And while they suppress thoughts, that feeling of I'm unlovable, I'm broken, I'm damaged, is exacerbated, is aggravated, becomes far more uh, overwhelming. Freud noted that a part of a successful therapy is that when people are suppressing thoughts, they'll project those thoughts onto others and feel persecuted. So if somebody is suppressing same-sex desires due to living in a very homophobic culture, they'll start to see other people as being gay and start to believe that those people are attracted to them because they're so frightened of their own desires for those individuals. So they'll project or transfer it onto another, their desires onto someone else and believe those people are attracted to them. This is very common in the 1940s and 50s where in certain states of the US there was such a huge uh, prohibition against miscegenation uh, uh, having sex with people of different races that very often um, white people would have uh, a fear that they were being lusted by uh, people of color when of course it was the inverse, the other way around. They were simply so much in denial of their own desires. So, and then displacement is quite common. When people suppress their anger, their aggression, they will vent it through passive aggressive means or, or sudden outbursts of rage against the people they love because they haven't found a way to integrate their anger into their normal day-to-day -day lives. Freud noted that the way that we begin to reclaim these repressed or unacknowledged or frightening impulses is we first transfer them onto the therapist. And as we do that, he says, there'll be a stage where these desires will be negated. There's an old uh, Freudian joke, which none of you will find funny, but uh, hell, uh, a guy goes to his therapist and says, I have had a dream last night. And the therapist says, oh, what, 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 what occurred in the dream? And the guy says, well, I was having sex with an older woman. It was very disturbing. And the therapist says, do you have a sense of who it was? And the guy says, I didn't know, but I can tell you one thing for certain. It wasn't my mother. So um, anyway, that's the joke. If you know anything about Freudian insights, you know, of course, it was his mother that was the person in question. So 
we deny, we transfer, we project, we experience core shame, signal anxiety, uh, we experience insomnia, very often there'll be a spike in addiction, um, drinking, binges, and so forth. There's so many negative outcomes associated with classically suppressing our desires. Winnicott noted that clients arrive in therapy with really one underlying unconscious goal, which is they all have a thought that cannot be acknowledged. And their desire is to get the therapist to speak their unacknowledged desire for them, to normalize it and make it seem okay. So it might be, I'm unhappy in my job. I'm unhappy in my relationship. I never wanted to be a lawyer or whatever. But we all have these, um, uh, you know, these disturbing thoughts associated with unconscious impulses. And our des the way forward is to find a safe space, whether it's with a therapist, a sponsor, a Buddhist, a spiritual counselor and pastor, where the disturbing impulses and thoughts can be known, can be disclosed, and can be normalized. Normalized means, one, you're not alone with these thoughts, two, simply having these thoughts doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you and three having disturbing thoughts doesn't even mean you'll act out on them it just simply means we all have um, a, a robust array of antisocial impulses in us and the more we try to suppress them the more insistent they feel and the more it feels as if, if we even talk about them, it feels like somehow we'll act out on them. But actually, it's the reverse that's true. The more we try to suppress disturbing thoughts, the more likely we are actually to act out on them. It's a... I mean, just to use an extreme example, Jeffrey Dahmer the uh, individual who's a serial killer who actually ate some of his victims um, had for years and years in childhood desires to harm animals that he never acknowledged to anyone and just continually suppressed and pushed out of his awareness. Well, that strategy didn't work, did it? Uh, so clearly there's so many examples of how trying to suppress or deny or push out of awareness makes the thought more insistent. So why is this? Well, normally, any impulse we have is represented as a thought, and it's held in working memory to determine consciously whether we should act out on it or inhibit it. That's the role of consciousness. As, as um, Benjamin Labette noted, all impulses start pre-consciously. They're held in consciousness as an idea, in words or as in images, and then hopefully we can inhibit them if they're bad. So there's this period where the impulse is represented as an idea, like that guy who cut me off on the road, I should get out of my car and punch and kick his, his side door. Well, that's an impulse represented as an idea. It's held in working memory. Now, certain impulses that are held in working memory for a moment are so disturbing, so taboo from our value systems. For example, a classic one might be a desire to engage in self-harm stemming from an early abuse. Very often people who are abused sexually or physically in childhood have fantasies of self-harm. But those fantasies are so disturbing, they immediately try to suppress them from awareness. Now, here's where 
the ironic process comes in. As Dan Wegner of Harvard noted, when we suppress a disturbing thought from working memory, the mind, the, especially the right brain, the right, uh, I think, orbital frontal, or perhaps the dorsal lateral, um, monitors consciousness for any vestige or remnants of the disturbing thoughts. And in so doing, it actually brings back the thought. So the prohibition of the thought actually makes the thought keep coming back. That's Wegner's ironic process. Um, and there's some great studies where he showed that in work. My favorite being his white, his polar bear studies, which you can read. I've already talked about it numerous times. Also, the reason why suppressed thoughts very often return again and again is because they may be linked to a trauma from early life, a trauma that has been blocked from awareness, that is seeking integration into our conscious life because it leaves us feeling so vulnerable. So the thought, the disturbing impulse, keeps coming back and becomes what's known as ego dystonic. It creates tension, fear, anxiety. Interestingly, sometimes the thought isn't, or the impulse isn't even that disturbing or forbidden, but because it's linked to a traumatic event or a shamed desire, the, rea the reaction to the thought, the fear of it, the repression, the suppression of it, can create intense feelings of shame and guilt and fear and suddenly this normal this normal impulse becomes more and more scary um i once spoke or worked with somebody many many years ago who had a in a moment where he was drinking engaged in very mild sex with another male but given his roman catholic upbringing he was so ashamed of it and so scared of it that it created this intense repression suppression and then because of it he became he concluded that there was some devil or some some evil part of him that was trying to kill him even though the single moment of uh, intimacy was in no way disturbing or an even uh, in any way uh, unusual in the slightest. So some psychologists also believe that in suppressing forbidden thoughts, we never fully process it and see that the thought or impulse is unrealistic and that we're very unlikely to act on it. In other words, the impulse to uh, be aggressive, to engage sexually or to steal or do something that we normally wouldn't do, comes up, it represents itself as a thought. The thought is so disturbing, we immediately suppress it. We become ashamed push it out of mind and because we do that so quickly we don't simply follow through with the normal process we give any other thought which is we weigh it we allow it to be there and then we go oh yeah i'm not going to do that that's not that's not very good and so if we didn't suppress it so quickly we would not need to push them out. We would not feel plagued by it. It would not keep recurring again and again and again. It's because we don't follow through with the normal process of evaluating the thought that the thought becomes intrusive. All psychologists and therapists agree that the way that the way forward is to one, allow the thought, no matter how disturbing, to be there without resisting it, to find someone safe and disclose it, 
to have someone who's willing to express or disclose any similar thoughts so that they normalize it for you and then to find safe ways strategically to integrate the impulses into our life maybe not by acting out on the original impulse but to find skillful ways to sublimate it so there are many tools to uncover blocked un uh, unintegrated repressed content by the way young used free association where you had people just spontaneously uh speak to uh uh whatever came to mind or he'd say a word and then ask them to immediately respond with anything they associated with it freud analyzed dreams slips of the tongue and any other expression of the unconscious some therapists today suggest what's called non-dominant handwriting which is to literally if you're right-handed put a pen in your left hand and just to start writing with it without thinking or directing the writing art and music therapy use those tools to connect with people's unconscious drives that haven't been integrated. Therapists for years used Rorschach tests and there are also certain types of meditations, some without theme and others with visualizations that are used to connect with repressed content and allow us to discern what is hidden behind the curtains of our mind and we'll be practicing one of those finally as i noted the two rigid moral codes that create forbidden thoughts but on the other hand if we have societies that are in a constant state of flux with competing value systems then we can feel just as uh, transgressive and just as disturbed if we don't have some kind of moral value system ourselves. The key is to have a value system that provides us with a, a foundation to evaluate our impulses, but a, f a moral code that's not too restrictive or outdated. For me, and this is just for me, that moral system is the Buddhist precepts against killing, stealing, uh, causing harm intentionally through speech, um, sexual misconduct, or intoxication. So in all, those are the foundations of my moral value system. If I ever have impulses that would transgress against them rather than suppress them. I write them out. I acknowledge them to another practitioner or someone I know is safe. And I find a place where I can safely uh, strategize ways where I can integrate the underlying impulses without acting in a way that's inconsistent with my moral outlook. So thank you. I hope tonight's talk was in some way interesting, in some way uh, normalized, destigmatized de uh, the idea that there's something wrong with us simply because we have at times violent or disturbing imagery or impulses. And now we're going to practice together. So find a comfortable seated position. And um, while you do that, if you'd like to support my work, which is ent provided entirely by donation, the Venmo is Dharma Punks, P-U-N-X, N-Y-C. And the PayPal button is on the Dharma Punks NYC website. So thank you for that. And now closing the eyes and finding a comfortable seated position. And bringing attention, 
bringing it back in from the world around us at the moment so that we become aware of the constellation of sensations occurring or generated by the body. The feeling of the inhalation and the exhalation, which creates movement in the chest cavity, often in the abdominal region, sensations of air arriving at the nostrils and leaving or from the mouth. The slight lift and release of the shoulders. Any sensations of comfort or discomfort in the body. Bringing a non-judgmental, non-evaluation to our awareness as if we're an anthropologist from another planet who's never been in a, a human body. And so all of these sensations are unfamiliar. We've never experienced the belly expanding and contracting. We've never experienced the eyes fidgeting behind closed eyelids. We've never experienced the sensations of the tongue, it's all new. And try to experience the body not from an awareness that feels perched above the shoulders, behind the eyes, between the ears, in the head. Expand your awareness so that you can almost sense that you can get very close to sensations occurring in the soles of your feet or your toes. If you slightly squinch the toes, See if you can experience your awareness descending into the body or moving closer to those sensations. And eventually See if we can let go of needing to locate which part of the body is associated with any given sensation. So for example, sometimes if we feel a sensation in the lower back, we might visualize the lower back and think, oh, that's my lower back. But what would happen if we simply relate to all the sensations of the body without any image of our body? So they just become a constellation of sensations that are not linked to anything, like stars in a night sky, the sensations of the body no longer associated with any image of our body. And our awareness is no longer limited to our head. It's now large enough to contain 
not only all of the sensations, but also all the sounds around us are now inside. There's no longer any outside or inside. And just try to keep awareness on what's actually occurring. If any thoughts are so compelling, they lure you away from being with the rich sensory impressions of this moment. Don't feel frustrated. Each time you drift away and become aware of it, just take a nice full breath. And as you release the breath, allow your awareness just to return to the world of sensations that are actually occurring right now. Sensations in the body, contact, feelings of movement, sounds around you. Always come back with a sense of joy that, or at least acknowledgement that every time we wake up from a thought, it's a small version of enlightenment itself. Enlightenment being not living in our representation of the world, but actually being in the actual sensations of the present moment without any filter or commentary added on.
So, for the second part, see if you can hold in your mind an image of yourself as representing yourself as the ideal, respected, accepted, version that you try to present to the world, your self-concept as one of skillful, polite, caring, Imagine that version of yourself that works hard, does the right thing, uh, acts responsibly. You're sitting in a chair right in front of you and just acknowledge how much effort you put in to presenting the world this face, this persona. And of course, this persona does represent a lot of your natural impulses to be kind and generous and caring. But it's not the entirety of you. So thank this part. And just imagine you could ask it to slide over into a chair that's slightly behind it. And then, as you've done this, a second figure has appeared in the chair. And this is a representation of yourself as fun-loving, cutting loose, a person who's not always hard-working, enjoys life, enjoys being frivolous, enjoys maybe hunkering down with TV or shopping, maybe at times binges on ice cream or uh, some other addictive behavior. And just acknowledge this part of ourself too that also plays in many times a vital role in our life. Acknowledge, in no way judge, and just invite this part of you too to move to a, a chair to the other side of where the first part, the part that works so hard to look good and be appropriate. And now this reveals a third part, which is a very young version of yourself that's angry or frightened or has all these desires and impulses that are in no way um, fit the ideal mold of what adult behavior conforms to. A child that just wants to scream or act out or kick or shove or quit one's job and run away or wants to run away from one's obligations and responsibilities. And just allow that image to be there and allow that image to speak and don't try to talk for it. See if you can just 
without any judgment or control, see if there's any desires, fears that this part of yourself wants to tell you. So this is a practice we can do any time we feel a desire to connect with content of the mind we don't often acknowledge or may not be all too aware of. But for this time, I'm going to, in a moment, ring the bowl and just take as much time as you need to open your eyes and reintegrate the sight of the world around you into 
the rich sensations of your internal landscape. 